Are you tired of being hooked on drugs or dependent upon alcohol? Addiction doesn't have to be a way of life. At Hope is Alive, we are on a mission to help men and women overcome addictions, find their purpose, and live a life of freedom. Hope is Alive Sober Mentoring Program provides safe, structured, and faith-based environments where men and women can truly change. In fact, over 80% of the residents who complete the 18-month program celebrate a fully recovered life. Don't live another day addicted. Step into sobriety. Step into a life of hope. For more information, visit hopeisalive.net. I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help. And I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident in the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast podcast. Well, welcome back. Here we are. It's a brand new year and uh, a brand new episode of the Hope Dealers podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fitzpatrick, hoping everybody out there had a wonderful holiday, wonderful Christmas, wonderful New Year's time with the family. Um, Hoping those that were good got some good presents. We are so excited that we've got a brand new guest here in the studio today with us, our very own Hunter Stutz. Hunter, how are you, sir? Doing good. How are you, Sean? I am wonderful. Wonderful. So glad to have you here, man. Um, right off the bat, your current title is operations manager for Hope is Alive. That is correct. But there's so much more that comes into your story. You're also a Hope is Alive alumni. I am. And you were previously a Hope is Alive program manager. I was. And if I'm not mistaken... You also were a part of the first Hope is Alive internship program. That is correct. Okay. So for our viewers, just give us a little background on yourself. We'll come back to all that in a minute. But, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? All that kind of stuff. Sure. So uh, I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina, born and raised, uh, born into a, a family of military and law enforcement that had, you know, all the all the rules laid out and, um Upstanding citizens, if you will, ah. raised in the church, uh, very involved in the youth group growing up, involved in athletics, extracurriculars, all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I I really got into baseball. That was that was the the thing that I loved and seemed to be what would pave a path for me for my future. Gotcha. So college and potentially beyond. Yeah. Uh, I I found I found solace in the sports. Mm. It it was something that I was good at and enjoyed, and I built my identity in that. If for those that don't know, Hunter is uh, gifted in every sport he tries. It's it's a uh, something to admire at first, and then when you start playing with him, it's it's a little frustrating. But uh, <laughs> sorry, brother, continue. <laughs> um. Sure. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. I, I hear that from a lot of people. <laughs> I've also gotten the uh, Hunter Stutz is annoyingly good at pointless things as mm. well. Yeah. I think I remember Jesse saying in your graduate video, he was like, Hunter is uh, good at all sports, um, almost to a fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, I was left-handed, 
six foot pitcher. Mm. So I, you know, I played varsity all four years of high school and that, that seemed to be what would, what would get me in college Okay, uh, that I would have scouts looking at me. And uh, my senior year, I actually got really sick and was unable to play my entire senior season. And that kind of shot down those hopes. So given that I'd been drinking and, and smoking weed throughout high school, it really opened the door for me to pursue a, a life of laziness mm. and enjoying the less finer things in life. So basically when baseball was out the door, you just kind of broke down. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd built my entire identity around being a baseball player and mm-hmm. that was my, my outward identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people heard my name, that's, that's what they associated with me. And yeah, being that, I wasn't able to play any chance of uh, scouts looking at me for college went out the door. So yeah, I totally just dropped it. Didn't pursue it at all after that. Gotcha. And so is that where your addiction really took off? Uh, It it was shortly after in college. Okay. So you did go to college. I did go to college. That is correct. Um, I went to Appalachian State University for a couple of years. It was in my first year in college where I started trying harder drugs. Mm. Um, throughout high school, it was alcohol and marijuana. That's really all I ever messed with then. But it wasn't until Christmas break, my freshman year, that uh, I came home with my roommate, who I'd also grown up with. Mm-hmm. And one night he just said, hey, I've uh, got some cocaine I'm selling for a friend, but I've also got my own little bit if you want to try some. And uh, instantly, yeah, I'll try some. Sure. Yeah. I was excited about it, mm-hmm. and it was almost instantaneous after that first hit. I said, "How much of that do you have to sell? You know, <laughs> what what does that cost? Let me get some of that off you." Um, that that's where it began. That's where I had that first euphoric hit of that hard drug that I would fall in love with down the road. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was not easy to come by at the school I went to. So you know, when I could, I would get it. But I wouldn't call it an addiction at that point. Right. So basically, you're just kind of experimenting, just kind of messing yeah. around. Yeah. Also, while I was at school there, you know, it was, um, there, there's a, a population of people there that you might classify as hippie. So there's all the, the mushrooms and psychedelics, LSD, DMT, all those kind of drugs. Those were more prominent there. So I did start using those um, over-the-counter cough medicines, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, anything I could get my hands on, really. And I didn't realize that it was that kind of a problem at that mm-hmm. point. I mean, so at this point, you know, you're in college, you're kind of just messing around, but you're definitely interested in substance. Is it, is there this like, you know, feeling that life isn't, it already isn't turning out the way you planned. So who cares? Yeah, I... It was ironic, the the work ethic that had been instilled in me my mm-hmm. entire childhood, I I never actually implemented it. Okay. I, I took what was given to me um, by God or my parents, and I used that, but I did nothing to further it. Uh, I had natural abilities in baseball, but I never went and worked out and made myself stronger. Um, I... I was smart enough, but I didn't like to do the work. Mm-hmm. I didn't like homework. I didn't like projects. So I didn't do well in school yeah. at the end of it. Uh, I would bust my butt the last second of the semester to get 
stuff turned in for makeup work so I could pass. Yeah. But but I didn't like to do the work. So getting into college. Yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme, uh, real quick, just that a lot of us in addiction, you know, and now in recovery, we all uh we, we never really wanted to put the work in, but we wanted the results. Yeah. Um and I talk to people all the time. I mean, I was the same way. Everything's going to work out somehow. Mm-hmm. We'll make this work out. And uh, like you said, you know, just cramming at the last minute, getting stuff done at the last minute, but never really just setting ourselves up for success by just working all along. Absolutely. It's, it's the self-sabotaging mm-hmm. side of one day at a time. Right. I was living in the moment, not thinking about my future at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, just kind of life just wasn't, had already not turned out how you thought it would. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, I wasn't able to put the words to it yet, but I was looking for an escape. I got you. So you finished college? I did not. Uh, <laughs> I, I tell this uh, half joking, half serious because it is true, but I have dropped out of college four times. Wow. I've attended three different colleges, uh, Appalachian State, Southwestern Community College in Western Carolina, and then I attended Fable Technical Community College twice. Um, and each time it was, uh, an impulsive pursuit to either peace family mm. or something that caught my eye. And I thought maybe I can make something out of this. Right. But then that, that lack of work ethic yeah. fell in every time and realized I was wasting time and money and I'd bail out. But also it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, you weren't really doing it for you. It was just to get people off your back and because it's probably what was expected of you. Yes. Which is a dangerous path to go down in our world. It is. Uh, and that's that along with, I did, I did get a, a couple charges, several charges while I was at Appalachian State. But along with that and academic probation, I, I realized in my sophomore year that I was not ready for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wasting what at the time was my grandparents' money. Okay. And I felt that it was best that I removed myself from that until I was really committed. Mm-hmm. So there's enough conscious there to realize that this is just not working out and you're hurting other people in the process, people yeah. who do really care. Yep. And so for you, when does things really start to spin out? Moving back home. Uh <laughs> So many times, I think I moved back home when I was struggling like six times and every time, you know, it's the famous, it's going to be different this time. This is, <laughs> this is that part in the story where we're going to look back and this is where I turned it around. Yeah. That, that delusion, it's, yeah. it's wild how it works, but yeah, I moved back home. Um, and that same college roommate who he he dropped out our freshman year. Yeah. He had a couple possession charges and decided to leave halfway through our freshman year. But he he had introduced me to this one guy who also sold Molly or MDMA. Gotcha. So I tried that and I really liked that too. You know, it's it's ecstasy. It's great. Yeah. And so moving back home I figured I could probably get in touch with this guy. It didn't take two phone calls and I had his number. Somebody had his number and they're like, yeah, here he is. Where there's a will, there's a way. Oh man. And aren't we strong willed? Oh yeah. I, 
I got up with him, and that first summer back, it was probably fairly infrequent use. Um, I hit him up maybe once or twice a week or so, mm-hmm. and then I went back to college. Then I came back home again after dropping out the first time, and that's when it became not necessarily um, – any any particular frequency except when I was out I got more. Gotcha. So it's not, you know, every day I got some, but when whatever I got ran out, I would I'd seek out more. So So the habit's forming. Habit is forming. Along with that, of course, as any experienced drug addict knows, um, drug dealers don't always have supply. Mm-hmm. And so when that was the case, I managed to find people who had cocaine. Okay. Um, I didn't know where else to find Molly. I didn't really care. Uh, I like Coke enough that if I could get that, that would suffice. It, you know, it's more expensive. It, it's not the same, but but I would use them interchangeably. So, so there develops that habit alongside. And it seems so foolish looking back because it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. But over time, that molly that used to be clear and pink and all, it, it started to change. Everything about it changed. The color, the consistency, the actual high, the the withdrawals, the taste, just everything was different. Mm-hmm. But it was so gradual that at first I didn't notice, and when I kind of did notice, I didn't care. Yeah. And I remember one day in particular, I was I was actually at a Coke dealer's house, and I said, um, I said, oh, I got some Molly. You want to do some? And I pulled it out, and he said, he said, that's not Molly, man. That's meth. <laughs> no. I said, what? No, that's that's not meth. And he said, no, I'm telling you, man. Take a lighter to it. Watch it. And in a, a split second, I decided I was already addicted. My use or method of choice was snorting. I didn't like to shoot up stuff. I didn't like to smoke stuff. Mm-hmm. And I realized if I put a lighter to it, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Ah. And I just accepted I'm addicted. I'm not going to test it out. It's meth. Yeah. Um, and at that point, it had probably been meth for two or three years. Jeez. Uh, and that's, you know, picking up two or three times a day to feed that habit. So you're actively addicted to methamphetamines for two to three years without even realizing it. Yeah. Uh, living in complete denial. I probably yeah. did realize it. Sure. I didn't want to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. We always love uh, falling into denial and those kind of things. So, well, let's move forward a little bit. Um, you know, what, you know, what brings you to the point of like, okay, I've hit my rock bottom. This has gone way too far. I need help. I... I've I've hit two rock bottoms. Been okay. to, been a treatment twice. The first time, I'd been living in an apartment on my own for five or six months yeah. at home, and feeding my addiction. I hadn't paid bills or rent in four months. So in the winter, uh, no heat, no lights, no running water, and um, on my way to getting evicted. Barely enough money to put gas in my truck to get to and from work, but definitely enough money to get the drugs. Sure, yeah. Um, so 
mid-December of that year, I went home and my locks had been changed. Had an eviction notice and didn't know what else to do. Went over to my mom's and waited. And when she came home, <laughs> what are you, what are you doing here? And I had to break it to her that you know I'd been evicted. And here's why. Well, why haven't you been paying rent? Well, I don't have money. Why don't you have money? Okay, I got a problem. Um, I wasn't willing to admit the mm-hmm. the real truth about the meth at that time, but I told her I had a problem with cocaine. Yeah. And uh, she said, you know, we'll help you, but you have to go to treatment. That was that was the first time that I went to treatment. I went and I did everything they said to do in treatment. Check the boxes. I checked those boxes. I was very involved, um, very much a participant of everything I could be. Um, and I just didn't know the truth about it all. I didn't believe a lot of it mm. um, when I heard all the people say that I was in here two years ago for heroin. Now I'm back for alcohol. I didn't believe that that could happen to me. I didn't see it as a problem. Because you're special. Because I'm special. I'm so different. <laughs> and my mom and my dad came pick me up the day that I completed the program. We went to lunch. And at lunch, I ordered a beer with my lunch. And they both looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, I had a problem with drugs, not alcohol. Oh, no. And, I mean, as soon as we got home, I got in my truck. I went and bought alcohol and went to my friend's house. It so you're quickly just replacing one thing for another. Very quickly. And as we all know, it, it leads back. Yeah, because it's never enough. Right. So now over the next couple of months, I get back into my old habits of using everything I possibly could. Yeah. So fast forward a uh, year and a half, two years. I have, you know, as many of us have, had a lot of friends die. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol. Uh, up to this point, it had been about a friend a year since I was 16. And at this point, 24, 25. Uh, this summer, I had four friends overdose in a month, one of which was that college roommate who'd been sober for a year, came back, did heroin once, died that night. Um, another childhood friend overdose on opiates, two other high school friends that same month. And I realized more so at that point, still not fully, but more so that I I was, I was probably next in line. Yeah. If not next, somewhere close by. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't, still wasn't ready to admit everything um, the only thing I could do was what I knew to do, and that was to leave. Mm-hmm. I still didn't know the help that I needed, but I I saw a way out in getting away. Fortunately, I had a, a really good friend of mine who lived in Catoosa, just outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'd been talking to him about moving away, and he said, Hey, man, moving into this new townhouse. It's got an extra room if you want to move in. I said, yeah, let's do that. So in September of 2018, moved to Oklahoma. And that was the last day that I did meth. Uh, <clears throat> and I was, I was determined to leave it behind. Mm-hmm. 
and you know, I I bought a good bit and I drove for 21 straight hours from North Carolina to Oklahoma, but that was the last that I had. Um, just like last time, I traded it for alcohol very quickly, very quickly. Um, liquor store right by the house, and had a chance to to turn things around and start over. Yeah. Uh, new new place, new environment, new people. One one person from my past who's a great influence and a great friend, and got me a really good job that had a good future with it, mm-hmm. um, good pay, good benefits, room for growth, all of that. And I threw that away, just being drunk, not not showing up, not calling, taking way too much time away being late, all the, the little things that add up. And, and I have losing that job. While I'm looking for another job, and there's air quotes around looking for, <laughs> because my, my process was wake up, drink, maybe 10 a.m., think, oh, I got to get a job. Yeah. Look online, find something that looked appealing, and then realize, well, I'm, I'm already half drunk. I probably can't go do an interview today. Mm. We'll start tomorrow. And then continue drinking to oblivion that day. Uh, and that, that went on for two or three months. Um, at the end of it, I was, I was drinking at minimum two gallons of hundred proof vodka every day. And that's just at home. When, when my buddy would get home, we'd go to the bar or casino and I'd drink more. Um, and it felt miserable at the time, but I thank God for this depression that I fell into. Yeah. I fell into a depression for a period of about a week where prior to this, again, two gallons of vodka, two packs of cigarettes every day. This depression, it, it put me in bed all day long for four or five days. Didn't get up except to get a little bit of water and maybe use the bathroom. Didn't eat, no alcohol, no nicotine. Those withdrawals started to hit. Mm, As they will. As they will. My goodness. After day two, I started having trouble just getting to sleep. And after day three, shaking like crazy, I had this terrible headache. I... At the end of day three, I was having so much difficulty breathing that if I stopped thinking about breathing, I would gasp for air. I had to consciously go. <sighs> yeah, and I've been through those alcohol withdrawals. I mean, it's no, uh, it's not speaking too much to say like it can kill you. Absolutely, yeah. And still not not fully aware of what was happening. I, I called my mom and said, you know. I, I feel like I'm going crazy. I feel like I'm losing my mind. And yeah. I was. Something's wrong. Yeah, something is terribly wrong. I can't sleep. I'm shaking. My head hurts. Uh, I feel nauseous. All the things. And as my mom would normally ask, she said, have you been drinking? Because it was known that I had a drinking problem. Sure. So I was I was proud to say, no, you know what? I haven't. Actually, Mom, I haven't been drinking. I haven't had anything to drink in a couple of days now. And that's the problem. And she said, there's your problem. You drink so much. You've had nothing. Your body's deprived of what fuels it at this point. Yeah. 
and you're going through withdrawals. I said, oh, well, okay. And that's where we began the process of getting into treatment. Wow. This last time. Well, I want to hear more about that. And I also want to give our listeners a peek into how your Hope is Alive career went. But let's take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Is your loved one struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction? If so, Finding Hope support groups can help. Finding Hope support groups were specifically created for the loved ones of addicts and alcoholics. Through our free meetings, you'll find education, inspiration, and a community of other loved ones impacted by addiction. Each week, you will have the opportunity to learn more about addiction and find tools to help those you love. If you need help now, visit findinghope.today. So, Hunter, you are now headed back to treatment for the second time. Yep, um, I, I finally, finally uh, gave in and and was willing to go back to the treatment uh, for myself this time. I realized that I was about dead. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it took me a few days after that phone call with my mom to get an open bed at twelve and twelve. Gotcha. But um, yeah, that night my my roommate came home and I said, "Hey, look, I'm going to treatment." I want it. I know I need it, but uh, I'm actually afraid I might die. And yeah. right now, the only thing that could keep me from that is alcohol. When got a bottle, took a sip, and I could breathe again instantly. Mm. I could breathe again, and it hit me harder than ever. I'm completely dependent on this to have any semblance of a normal life right now, as far as physically speaking. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that, man. I remember the week that I finally had my last meltdown uh, before I got sober, in March of 2019 and I was alone at my dad's house and I was, I had gone like the same as you about a day and a half without any alcohol. And I was so sick and just shaking like a leaf. And I remember just finding this bottle of vodka under my bed and I wasn't trying to get drunk. I just knew that this was the only thing that was going to even me out. And I remember when my aunt finally came and got me and she saw this empty handle of Tito's, (laughs) She was like, oh my goodness. And I remember saying like, and it was, at this point it didn't matter, but I remember just being honest. And I was like, I promise you, this was just to keep me alive. This was just so that you didn't find your nephew passed away because it is that serious when you're going through alcohol withdrawals. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy what it can do to you. Um, but yeah, that, that morning of May 14th, 2019, I, I went into 12 and 12 Tulsa and I I committed myself to to doing everything they asked of me. Um, because you wanted to get better. Because I wanted to get better. And you wanted to live. I wanted to live. Uh, I I had experienced something that I never wanted to have to experience again. Yeah. And um, along with that, not for my family, but I didn't want that for my family. Yeah. Um, I wanted to give them back their son and their brother and their grandchild mm-hmm. that they raised and hoped to have. Right. Uh, and we kind of get to a point, it sounds like yours is similar to a lot of us where it's like as simple as it sounds, but it's like, they, they did not raise me this way. Right. Um, and just to circle back to it, it's like, I don't really know what this new life looks like, but all I know is I want a chance at it. Yep. Yep. So, um, in treatment, 12 and 12 in Tulsa and Maybe two and a half weeks into it, into a 28-day program, we had an H&I meeting, which is hospitals and institutions, mm-hmm. as you know. And this H&I was, hope is alive. 
the men and women's program managers from the Tulsa market of Hofus Live came and brought a meeting and spoke to us about their experience, their testimony, and how their life has changed since being in Hofus Live. I remember that night I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew there was something different about them mm-hmm. than the others that had come and spoken about just AA or um, different models, if you will. Sure. And that night I decided I want this. Whatever whatever it is they have, I want it. And I spoke with them afterward and said, hey, look, you know, I got a couple more weeks in here, but when I'm out, like, I, I would love to, to do this program. Yeah. And they, they gave me all the next steps, filling out the application, reaching out, getting, getting everything lined up, and I did that. Um, the, the day that I got out of treatment... My first program manager picked me up at treatment and took me home. That's amazing. I love that. And, you know, not to rewind too much, but you said you just felt like there was something different there. That I just want those to, listening, if you're a resident in the Hope is Life program or you're in recovery at all, that's the power that your story can bring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your, your, your story has so much power. Um, and it's crazy because it can, it can seem repetitive yeah. to, to you, to you as you tell it over mm-hmm. and over and over again. But the truth is you never know who's hearing it for the first time and who's going to reach this time. Absolutely. I've always said anytime I make a visit to a treatment center to share my story, if there's 50 guys in there, if there's 10 guys in there, what doesn't matter if one person yep. feels something from what I talked about, then mission accomplished. Absolutely. Um, so you had HIA. I had to HIA, um, and and one of the one of the greatest appealing factors of HIA is that it was faith based. Gotcha. While I was in treatment, to briefly rewind, yeah, I I reconnected with God. Yeah, I had my Bible and I reignited my prayer life, and it, it all goes back. My my mom, and shout out to all the praying moms out there. Um, if you're still praying, keep praying, but. But my mom had been praying for so long and had had so many people praying for me for so long. And she'd pray, she'd prayed the prayer, the scripture, raise up your child in the way you should go. And when he grows old, he will not depart from it. And while I took my time away from the way that I should have been living, when it came time to come home, I knew what to do. Yeah. Um, And I'm, I am forever grateful for for Sharon Phillips and Rick Stutz and Joey Taylor, Sam Taylor, all the all the family that have been praying for me my whole life before I ever had a problem, they're praying for me. Yeah, um, that you know they raised me the right way. That when when it came time, I knew what to do. Yeah. So, so yeah, Hope is Alive was very appealing. Um, that it was it was based in faith. And, and you could just see it on these two program managers' faces that they were just different. Yeah. And so now I'm in Hope is Alive in Tulsa and far from home, very far from home. But that's a good thing. (laughs) It is. It was a great thing for me. (laughs) It's exactly what I needed. It gave me the opportunity to completely redevelop my my environment socially yeah um 
And in this home, I found community like like no other that I didn't expect, that I didn't know existed. Mm. Um, people with with one common problem that united us. It didn't matter that I was from North Carolina. Right. It didn't matter that I was raised in the church and someone else wasn't. Right. Um, it didn't matter that I liked meth and they liked heroin. We we had the same problem and we had found the same solution. Yeah. And, and it was just an incredible community of camaraderie and brotherhood and I'm sure sisterhood in the women's homes. Absolutely. Um, and... That first culture night where you got to see everybody. I didn't know how big HI was at that time. Oh, yeah. I remember the first culture night being like, whoa. Yeah, I'd, <laughs> I'd seen two and at um, the Tulsa culture nights at the time. Yeah. Four homes and like, wow, this is a lot of people. And then you get to see all the Oklahoma City and Wichita. And like, wow. And what it's grown to now. It's just incredible. Oh, yeah. I remember showing up, like, I think when I showed up, I knew that there was a few homes in Oklahoma city. That's all I knew, but it turned out there was like eight homes in Oklahoma city and four in Tulsa and Wichita. They had just opened up one in North Carolina. Now, I mean, we could go on and on. There's over 25 homes at this point, but yeah, you, you kind of start to get this feeling that you're really a part of something so much bigger than yourself. Yep. Absolutely. It was, it was here at Hope's Alive in that home that people started to see in me the things that I couldn't see in myself. Yeah. Uh, I had people saying stuff like, you're a leader. And you know, <laughs> you're, I look up to you. And like, what? It, it just didn't make sense at the time. But it's funny you say that because, you know, obviously we know that now you are on the help is alive team and have been for some time now, but as the social media person at the time, I remember having to write up a lot of stories on multiple residents all the time. And so because of that, I would talk to their program managers a lot. And in July, I believe it was of 2020 when we started that hope is alive internship program. And they sent me a list so that I could get computers set up and all that. And I saw Hunter Stutz on there coming out of Tulsa. I was not surprised at all. And I'd never even really met you. I think I'd probably seen you in passing a couple of times at a culture night. But I remember when I saw you coming in, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And, you, you know, it's funny, but you're saying, you know, you didn't totally see it in yourself, but everybody else saw it. And I will tell you, brother, you do. You exude leadership. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And then I can, I can see it in myself now. Yeah. It's, it's cool looking back and seeing how God's developed that. But uh, yeah, growing up um, uh, with with this follower mentality, mm -hmm. I, I I was in the back of the pack. Yeah. So um, so it didn't make sense to me. I didn't. I wasn't the the outgoing extrovert that that uh, I saw a lot of people being. So I was like a leader. That doesn't sound like me. I don't like public speaking. I don't like the spotlight. I used to be very shy as a child. So. I was, it was a little weird to hear that, but, um, but yeah, about you know, five or six months in, uh, I became a house manager mm -hmm. and those in HIA or associated with it at all. know, you know, that's, that's where you take a, an official role of leadership in the home. Yeah. Um, you help mentor the new guys coming in. You, you're, you're the example of sobriety 
in faith in that home. Right. So I remember when I saw my house managers, when I came in and I was like, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first house manager, he hooked me up with a bunch of side jobs to make a little extra cash, gave me a ride. You know, I was coming off of DUI when, you know, actually I hadn't even been convicted yet when I moved in, it wow. happened later. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't have my vehicle at the time. So house managers, uh, shout out to y'all because that's, uh, that's a, a huge role. You do so much for the, the residents in your homes. Absolutely. And so you end up taking a position as a program manager intern yes. in July of 20. And I mean, I remember as a central office employee, the joke that we had with you was it looked like you had already been on the job for about a year <laughs> because every time we saw you, you were just like, you'd come up to the office, you were always speeding around, you know, stapling papers together, preparing for your midweeks, like... I was just like, I don't, is this guy already worked here? I'm confused right now. And you fit into that job pretty seamlessly, it seemed. Yeah. Uh, all the credit to God, because um, I don't know how. But yeah, I just, <laughs> it just felt like it fit. Yeah. And I felt very comfortable and at home with it. Yeah, I, I, I did my internship for a few months and came on full time. And um you that, even PM'd me for a little bit. I did. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I've, um, uh, I got to program manager, <clears throat> excuse me, program manage in Oklahoma city. Yeah. And from that, I had the opportunity to oversee a couple homes. Um, and that's actually when you became a house manager as well. Toward, oh yeah. Toward, toward the latter end of your stay as a resident. Yeah, that was a funny time. I had been in the program for close to two years. I'd been working there for close to two years, and I still hadn't managed a house. And I forget, it It wasn't because I didn't want to or something like that. It was just one of those things that hadn't really happened. I think after I came on and started working for Hope Us Alive, I just kind of, I was, I was okay with that. And then it was our wonderful Allison Lang that, realized all that and was like, wait a minute. No, you need to manage a house before I ever think about graduating you. <laughs> yeah. And I Give remember this guy some more responsibility. Yeah. And I will say not to veer to my own story, but that was, uh, that was an interesting thing because as you well know, when you're a house manager, you know, you're very hands on with Hobo's Alive stuff in the yes. program. Um, but you know, eight to five, I'm at the office you know, working on videos and social media and photography and media, whatever. And then I come home and I got to put an entirely different hat on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do remember that. That was a, that was an interesting time and you were freshly uh, full time on staff and my program manager. I remember thinking, I was like, man, a lot is changing around here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. Uh, shortly after that, I got to go open up a new market and, you know, kind of build that as, as my own market and, and see it from the ground up. That was a really cool experience. Yeah. Um, and this is where, this is where I get to see the, the tangible fruits of, of my willingness and, and God's work in my life, because this is where I met my now wife. Um, we were first introduced on day one, opening that house. She's life church staff and was there helping us move in with her, best friend, Carla Verbornik. Yeah. And um, it's from there that, that we 
<clears throat> we were able to develop a relationship in the church and uh, yeah, married now. So <laughs> I was at the wedding. You were at the wedding. I remember right. I made the drive. <laughs> um, and from there, from Arkansas, got the opportunity to develop some program managers in Tulsa and Wichita before taking on the role here at the central office as the operations manager. So real quick, I just want to touch on because your journey to your job is different than a lot of others. You're not the first person to, you know, switch departments in a way, but you know, you went out and opened a home and then you ended up being asked to move around a little bit and develop PMs. Now, on the one hand, I'm sure it's awesome to know that there's that trust in you to go out there and breed new leaders. On the other hand, is it difficult kind of not knowing exactly where you're going to be staying in a few months? Yes. Yes. Uh, and the only reason I ask that is because when we're going through our addiction, one thing that we have a tendency to not do ever is trust the process, <laughs> right? We want to do things our way right away. And it sounds, if I, you know, knowing your story now, it's probably difficult. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm in Tulsa right now but I could be in Wichita next month or I could be back in Oklahoma city. Maybe not. Maybe I'm staying here, but you just trust the process, right? Yes. That's, that is all I could do. Um, and at the head of that process is God. That's, that's who I was trusting. Um, you know, we talk about, we trust our leaders and I would always tell my, my residents or, or anybody that would listen. The reason I trust my leaders is because I know who my leaders trust. Mm. Uh, I'm not just following blindly behind somebody. My leaders trust God. They seek his will. They seek advice from, from many, many people before making decisions. Um, it's not just impulsive behavior here. So, so yes, um, from, from December of last year to April we're in 2023 now. Let me take that back. From December of 2021 <laughs> to April of last year, <clears throat> my life looked like this. Arkansas to Tulsa in December. First week of January, Tulsa to Wichita. Three months there, back to Tulsa at the beginning of April. And then within two weeks, moved here. That was... Very difficult. Yeah. It was it was challenging for me to put roots down and to get comfortable anywhere. Sure. It was difficult for me to get to know the guys and to develop those relationships knowing they could be separated at any moment. Yeah. It was especially difficult on my relationship with my life. We were just dating at the time. Yeah. And we were very serious about each other. So the prospect of marriage was very real to us. And the uncertainty of where I might end up made that challenging. I remember having those conversations with you when you would, you know, from time to time pass through the central office in Oklahoma City. And I'd ask how you were doing. And you were like, I'm great. It's awesome. But I'm getting married at some point, And I just need to figure out where. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and, and beyond that, it's um, it was it was difficult for me to wrap my head around the possibility of of um, 
moving markets after the fact, uh-huh. you know, and, and uprooting our, what would be our family. Yeah. So while that's not to deter anybody from trusting the process and making those moves and, and following where God's leading you, because that's what I did. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had every opportunity to bail on that and just go where she was and make what was the easy choice of finding a job that didn't have the possibility of me moving around and we could just be together. Right. Um, but you trusted, but I trusted the process and in that God led me right where he wanted me. Um, you know, I, I said my entire working life that I'd never have a desk job, never have a 95. I like work with my hands, like moving, I like all that kind of stuff. I didn't want to be tied to a desk. And it was just crazy how, again, seamlessly, I, I feel like I slid into this role and just felt comfortable at a desk with a computer. Um, and eight to five. <laughs> eight to five. Uh, yeah, trusting that process, I believe, is is absolutely what, what brought me here. Yeah. I don't believe that I would have the stability. I don't believe that I would have the the option to, to walk in the calling of my life right now if I had done what I thought I should do. Right. Because one common theme that a lot of leaders tell us when we come in and then we in turn tell the people coming in behind us is like, look, our way didn't work. Your way doesn't work. Yep. Um, and even when it's something, you know, as simple as like you were saying, like, well, look, I can just go move here and take the easy way out. I'll settle down. I'll get a job and we can just stay put. But sometimes there's something more calling us. Yes. Yeah. It, it was, it was absolutely a, a period of spiritual growth for me Yeah, where with so much uncertainty and it started in Arkansas um, with that, with the home there and the HOA and all the things that, that came along with that and not, not being sure what was going to happen, that I started turning to God in a different way. And it was just, you know, I don't know what you're doing here, God, but I know you're good. I've seen what you've been doing in my life and in so many others' lives. I trust you're going to do something good with this. It might hurt right now. Sure. And I may not understand it for years to come, if ever, but I'm going to trust you. That's all I can do. Absolutely. And then in July of this uh, last year, you graduated. Yes, it did. Um, you and I got to room together for, what, three three, mo- three or four, four months? months? Something like that. <laughs> yep, yep. Then you got married. I got married. Got, got booted out of the bro house. Oh, we didn't boot you out. It was, <laughs> I think it was just time for you to move on to that next season. <laughs> That's right. I, I booted myself. Um, that was a funny situation, like, when going into it, knowing that it's ultra temporary. And so I remember like the day that we were all moved in at the house and you and I are in the kitchen and it's fun. Like, cause through all of our time as residents, we had never lived together. Right. And here I am. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is cool for, for a minute. (laughs) This won't be lasting long, but it was good to know that, you know, the reason it wasn't lasting long is because you were heading into a, a very exciting new season, which was settling down with your amazing wife. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and even more of just the 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 way that God works is cool because uh, you know, she she was actually taking on a different role in Life Church yeah. than she had when we first met. Um, that's allowed her stability here at their central office and we've had the opportunity to, to buy a home together. It's just 
it's all the all the things that um, all the promises coming true. All the promises coming true. I love it. Well, Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope everybody out there got as much out of that as I did. I always love hearing your story. I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, if this is your first time listening to the Hope Dealers podcast, do me a favor. Please give us a five-star review. It helps us tremendously. Uh, once again, thank you all so much for listening. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday. It's going to be a great year, 2023. I can feel it. And we will see you again next time. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. A new home for a while. Let me feel alive. Nothing to hold me back. Take my time. Just enjoy the ride. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel so alive.